Uh, well, I like numbers, um, which is a strange thing for um, uh, a theater artist to say. Um, but um, uh, just as a recreational hobby, um, I like reading data-based journalism. Um, and, you know, there's been some of that um, in the theater field, um, but not nearly um, as much as I'd like to see. I mean, obviously, TCG um, puts together its guide of the, you know, the 10 most produced plays each year. Um, and and those things are, are important, um, but it doesn't feel like there are that many people um, taking a deep dive um, into uh, into the topic. Um, so I was at the um, in terms of the initial seed for this piece. Uh, I was at the LMDA conference um, in the summer of 2019, uh, Literary Managers and Dramaturgs of America. Um, and there was a dramaturg who was on a panel who was speaking, and he said, "You know, we all have." Um, plays that we don't do, plays with children, plays with large casts, um, et cetera. Um, and that comment actually got me thinking, first, not so much about who's writing for the stage, um, but what the content of the plays look like. Um, and if there really was a truth behind that kind of cliche of, oh, we do this kind of play, but we don't do that kind of play. Um, and so it actually started with me being interested in things like cast size and are the assumptions we're making about cast size, um, especially cast size of new plays, um, backed up um, by the data. Um, and so that's kind of where I started. Um, and there's another writer on um, HowlRound, um, Portia McGovern, um, who's been doing a lot of database writing for them for quite a few years, um, looking at who's directing and designing in Lort companies. Um, and so in looking at her work, I started to think, well, what might this look like if uh, I expanded that out to um, the area of new play development? Um, and is there a way to really start to map out through data um, who's writing for our stage um, and what kinds of things are they writing? Um, how many characters are on the stage? What do those characters look like? Um, and can we, through numbers, um, get a get a picture of um, our stage um, as opposed yeah, to just yeah. waxing about what we think we're seeing? Yeah, that that was essentially my goal. Uh, was to see if I could get substantial survey participation uh, from Lort artistic directors and literary managers, as well as NNPN Lort arti uh, NNPN artistic directors and literary managers, to start trying to measure what the landscape of new play production currently looks like across the country. So that was the impetus for the project. Okay, um, did you do this all by yourself? I did. Uh, obviously, anytime anyone who works with HowlRound uh, has an editor, uh, and I had a wonderful editor who uh, looked at all my writing and, and gave feedback and helped with the revising process. But in terms of the data collection, the data an analysis, and the write-up of the article, um, this, this was work that, um, that I did uh, by myself. How long was it since you started looking for the first bits of information till the final draft to your editor. How long did this take? Three, four months. Okay. That's a lot of work for three, four months. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So you put out uh, 
uh, questionnaires, I believe, to I think 111 theaters in Lort at National New Play Network series uh, uh, theaters. 111 productions at. Okay. Um, uh, no, actually, sorry, I'm sorry. You uh, you are you are correct. Um, uh, no. I, I am correct. Sorry. <laughs> One of us is uh, correct. One hundred and eleven titles. Okay. Um, and slightly fewer uh, companies than that. Gotcha. But one hundred and eleven titles. So how many responded? Uh, I had a response rate of seventy-two percent. Uh, so I received uh, completed surveys for eighty of the hundred and eleven titles that I identified. Okay. What questions did you ask? So there were three kind of broad categories of questions. Uh, the first was kind of drilling down into uh, the identity of the playwrights themselves. The second was kind of drilling down into the identity of the characters uh, and cast size. And then the third category uh, was looking at things like genre and and runtime. Uh, so in terms of questions about the playwright, uh, yeah. or questions about gender identity, uh, uh, cisgender and transgender, uh, ethnic background, um, does the playwright have an MFA, uh, as well as age. Uh, and then from there, um, I started to look at cast. Um, so how large is the cast, um, as well as cast composition, or at least half of the characters specified by female as female by the playwright, are at least half of the characters specified as non-white by the playwright. Uh, and asking if the play um, contains uh, characters uh, from um, specific demographic groups. So does the play have any African-American characters in it? Does this play have any Asian or Asian-American characters in it? Latinx characters, Middle Eastern or Arab-American characters? Um, and then finally, uh, I started to look at uh, the content of the play. So I asked things like, does the play have an intermission? Would you consider this play to be realism? Does this play mostly take place in someone's home? Um, and what would you say is kind of the central thematic focus of the play? Uh, so it wasn't just looking at um, the who of the playwright and the who of the characters, but mm -hmm. also trying to look at, you know, does our theater really look like 90-minute plays um, that are all kind of family domestic realistic dramas um, and how true is that uh, actually in practice yeah let's go back to the beginning of that because um, let's talk about gender first of all I noticed in the article you have playwrights by gender part one and playwrights by gender part two and in the first part, you give a breakdown of percentages, but in the second part, you say 100% are cisgender, 0% are transgender. I find that surprising. I would think that there would be not so much of a, a complete lack of transgender playwrights. Surely somebody must have been produced someplace in one of these theaters. I've, I've found that to be, at least in this day and age, because we are starting to get more progressive. We are starting to get more inclusive, uh, despite what this, you know, the fears of the subscriber base might be. So that part, at least, I found very surprising. I was certainly disappointed. Um, I don't know if I would say that I was surprised. Um, just having 
looked at seasons over the past few years as well. Um, but it certainly was a data point that really stood out to me that out of the 80 completed surveys, um, a hundred percent of the playwrights, um, were identified as trans, uh, as cisgender. Yeah. You know, there were, uh, there were a few, uh, respondents who left that question blank because they didn't know the answer. It's quite possible that there are transgender playwrights who are not out um, or whose uh, gender identity was not known to the respondent. But um, at least in all instances where someone responded to the question, um, yeah, there was 0% of the writers identified as transgender. Hmm. Again, like you said, disappointing. Um, But what I found previously when looking at at, at your uh, uh, details here, 53.3% 53.3% are women, 42.7% are men. Is that a sign of progress? Is that less than what it was the year before? Because I know that the issue of producing women playwrights has been a big one, at least in the major theaters, for a very long time. Well, this is the first year I've conducted the study. Uh, It is my intention to do this over a longer period of time. Uh, So uh, this data can be seen longitudinally, uh, and we can see uh, how these numbers fluctuate uh, over time. Uh, But uh, to my knowledge, this is the the first time uh, that anyone's done a study of an entire season like this. So I can't say if it's an improvement over the previous year, Uh, I think certainly the fact that the majority of uh, these writers uh, are female is an encouraging sign. My hunch is that uh, those numbers will go up even more. Uh, And I say this because when you actually kind of drill down by age, when you get to younger writers, it's even a slightly higher percentage who are female. Uh, so I think um, much as the larger workforce is changing and transforming uh, and becoming uh, in this country and becoming a majority female workforce, I think we will really start to see that um, with playwrights uh, and gender identity over the next decade. Uh, and I would not be surprised, you know, if I did this study in 2030, if it came out 60, 40 even, uh, right. I really wouldn't be because I know, like you said, we were looking. Um, TCG does the you know ten most produced plays of every year, and inevitably a number of those are Shakespeare, of course, uh, possibly because of <laughs> the rights. But uh, <laughs> the women that keep popping up are Teresa Rebic and Lauren Gunderson, year after year after year, and they are extremely popular playwrights, and their plays get done a lot. Um, I was wondering if it's, I'd like to, well, personally, I'd love to see more, more variation on that. Uh, you know, it's, uh, just to see more voices from the women's world shining through in our larger, larger theaters. Yeah, I think you'll see, um, I, I, I think you'll see a greater diversification on that TCG list as well over the next decade. I mean, you can already kind of start to see it 
Lauren Yee, I know, was on it this past year. Uh, she's being produced quite a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Lynn Nottage is a writer who's been on and off that list as well. Right. Um, so I, I do think um, you'll see that trend expand as well uh, beyond just kind of white women dominating the dominating the TCG list. And I think, you know, the next data point here where I look at uh, racial identity of the playwrights um, in terms of new play production, uh, while white writers are the largest group represented, uh, collectively non-white writers are uh, forming majority of uh, playwrights um, who received world premieres at Lord and NPN companies this right. season. So I think it's only a matter of time until that starts to trickle down and manifest in second productions and third productions and 10th productions and 12th productions, uh, which means that the kind of list that TCG does will also start to diversify as well. Sure. Can you posit uh, an explanation for why this is a trend, why this is, is happening? Why we're getting more uh, non-white writers being produced? I think this generation of literary managers and dramaturgs are just more conscious about race and diversity and how that lives in season programming and season planning. And I remember six, seven years ago, uh, both the Guthrie Theater and the Alley Theater had an entire season where every playwright was white and male and every director was white and male. I don't just mean new play. I mean the entire season. Um, And, you know, uh, I think rightly so. We're just kind of publicly dragged through cyberspace um, and really uh, held to account for not diversifying uh, what they're putting on the stage and who they're putting in director's chairs. And I think, I think younger dramaturgs are really committed uh, to making sure that doesn't happen mm-hmm. with, um, with their new play programming. Um, I'm assuming discussions about this are showing up in conferences like the LMDA that you attended a while back. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's on the forefront of everyone's mind, I think, especially um, in this historical moment as we're dealing with the Trump administration. Um, I think people are thinking even more intentionally about questions of racial equity and representation, um, given uh, given what the leadership of our country looks like. Um or the lack thereof, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, which we will get back to in a different question. I just want to touch upon one or two more of these sure. really interesting statistical figures. Uh, some of this was heartening to me and encouraging. Sixty-eight per, 65.8% in, of these plays, at least half of the characters are female. And in 57.7%, at least half of the characters are non-white. So that to me shows some kind of attention being given by people in the industry to increased 
attention to voices that have not been heard as much as they should have over the years. Was that a surprise Definitely. to you or did you expect that? It's a little higher than I expected. Um, you know, it's not that much higher than I'd expect after you look at the numbers for who's writing for the theater. So if you think about it in those ways, you know, in that way, you know, you have 53% of these playwrights are female. So it wouldn't be surprising if the vast majority of those plays um, feature at least 50% of female roles. Similarly, uh, about 53% of these plays were written by non-white writers. Uh, so again, it wouldn't be surprising uh, if those writers are choosing to write about the communities that they come from. Um, so I would say it's it's a little higher than I'd expect, um, but is still kind of very much in line with what you think would happen if you're diversifying who's writing for the stage. Uh, mm -hmm. Because once you diversify your playwright pool, then you start to diversify your character pool. You start to diversify the stories that you're telling, which then in turn trickles down to diversifying your acting pool. Uh, so these these things kind of create this chain reaction, but it right. really does start at the diversifying your playwriting pool level. I would not argue with that, but I would throw in, how do we diversify our audiences? I mean, if you look at most theaters, you're going to see not a whole heck of a lot of difference, more so than there have been in, in years past, but still, Theater is, when you look at the audiences, it's not as diverse as one might wish. You know, I would be curious, and it's not something that uh, I measured, and I'm not sure if it's something that could be uh, measured, but I would be curious to see if uh, the audience for the more diverse plays uh, in this study was also more diverse. Uh, I, I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. Uh, I do think, um, in general, uh, when you program stories about people's communities, uh, they're more likely to attend uh, yeah. because they feel like they will see themselves on stage. And I think, you know, in answer to your question, if you diversify your programming and you take down financial barriers to attendance and you combine those two things together, sure. then you'll really start to see a change in what, uh, what audiences look like in an audience composition. Um, so the programmatic aspect of it, I think is, is half of the puzzle. Probably. I I agree with you at least about the financial barriers. Theater is expensive. It's expensive to produce. It's extremely expensive to maintain. Most of an artistic director's job is begging for money. Uh, trying to keep the theaters open in non-COVID-19 times is enough of a struggle. And seats need to be filled, which is the number one job of uh, management of any particular theater. But making it accessible, taking away 
because I still think theater has a kind of a stigma. You have to get up, you have to get dressed, you have to make an evening of it instead of sitting in your recliner eating popcorn and watching, you know, uh, America's Got Talent, which is uh, very easy to do. This requires effort, and this means you are out with other people. So it's a whole different kind of thing. You have to make this effort to do it. And leaving Broadway aside, because the prices there have been just absolutely ridiculous, still, community theaters or regional theaters are charging sometimes $50 a ticket. How do I know I'm going to get my $50 worth? That's the thing, which is, I think, a big barrier to most people taking that chance, taking that shot, and you know, putting on a pair of pants and actually going out. I agree. Yeah, I agree completely. And I hope someone will really do the statistical research into that topic as well. I mean, again, part of why I did what I did was... I wanted to just inspire more data-based journalism mm. uh, in in the theater today. Uh, and I would hope that in seeing an article like this, people would be inspired to collect data on other things as well. And one of those things that, in fact, was on my mind was audience composition. Uh, and this study is designed solely to look at what do our new plays look like. But I would hope that someone would pick up the mantle and – study what do our audiences look like and how much uh, do they change based on what's on the stage, based on price point, uh, and, and those kinds of questions. Obviously, it would be a very, very heavy lift, but I think we need to know that. Yeah. My hunch is that most theaters probably have some sense of that within their own individual data, but kind of pooled nationwide. There really isn't um, any measurement, at least that I know of, that yeah. kind of tries to measure who's who's coming to the theater. I, I mean, the NEA does, does some pretty big studies around um, income level and, uh, and theater attendance. So that's probably the, the best gauge of it. But uh, I, I really do think we we need to drill much, much more deeply uh, into this topic with numbers, because right now it really sure. does like we're flying blind. Well, I think we're coming to a new awakening and we're starting to put the tools that we have into service to diagnose the situation that we happen to be in. So I think in a sense we are flying blind uh, because we have individuals like yourself taking this on. And this is a big job. If you're going to do this again year after year, you're probably going to need some help because uh, this is not an easy thing to do. So... It will be interesting to see how theater's self-analysis progresses in the next couple of years. I'd like to go back to something we touched on earlier, which relates to another article that you wrote called Making Theater in the Season of Trump. 
And again, talking about audience composition, which I, I wanted to touch on earlier. Um, you raised the proposition in this article, which you wrote in 2016. Okay, so that was four years ago. And I want to ask you what your views are now on that article and how they are still the same and how they may have changed. But you raised the proposition that most theater audiences do not have a significant population of Trump supporters. And then you follow this with, and I quote, I do wonder if the Trump phenomenon would have come into being if politicians, artists, and activists had made an effort to engage members of these communities sooner. Theaters must now ask themselves, what would that engagement look like? What barriers of entry, financial being one of them, would need to be dismantled to reach these communities, and what plays would make these individuals feel empowered instead of angry and resentful? Go. <laughs> well, in terms of what's not changed, uh, I think that question is just as vital as it was in April of 2016 when I wrote the article. Yeah. Uh, I also have no idea how to answer that question four years later, um, just as I had no idea how to answer it uh, when I posed it either. Um, you know, um, this is a tricky question. Do we present material that will lure them into the theater? What would that material be? Would it be something that the theater might not particularly agree with. I know in the music world, it's different because we have songs that are played over and over and over again, which have content that are not the most open, not, you know, there's, there's some of it's a bit racist, but they're extremely popular and they get played over and over. And to do something like, to do something to reach out to this particular group of folks, what kind of material would need to be programmed? That, to me, is is a puzzling conundrum. You know, I think plays like Lenotage's Sweat probably fall into that category of the kind of programming that would work. Um, obviously, that play is filled with characters whose political and social viewpoints are quite different mm -hmm. from her own. Uh, and yet it feels like she is writing from uh, a compassionate place, even as characters engage in choices that I assume she would stridently disagree with. Uh, I think that play kind of gets at some of the underlying class resentment and racial resentment that gave rise to the Trump phenomenon without judging or berating those who um, yeah. are participants sure. uh, in, in that. Um, so those might be the kinds of plays that, uh, that I would look to that explore um, – Explore the dissolving social fabric that we have right now. Um, yeah, um, I, I wish 
I wish I had a better answer. I wish I had. Yeah, I wish, I had I wish we all answer. had better answers. I'm not sure um, we can answer that right now. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think the only times our audiences are truly diverse are when we're presenting popular entertainment, not yeah. substance entertainment, you know. So, you know, a touring production of The Lion King can attract people from sure. uh, all walks of life, Wicked, those, those kinds of shows. Uh, but they don't really change the way we think about things or foster a more cohesive uh, community. Right. So um, I don't know how you do something that's substantive, art-based, inclusive, yeah. socially relevant, in line with your values, and and still find a way to um, attract a politically diverse audience in yeah. this time of intense polarization. I mean, everything everything is polarized. Oh in my our, gosh, yeah. And theater is not immune to that political polarization. And uh, I, I don't know how it would get itself out of that larger trend, but... Nevertheless, I think it's incredibly important that we muddle through and find some way to do it. I do too, and it will take some time. Nothing is ever solved in a day, and this may take, will probably almost inevitably take years. Um, it's a question, I think, of introducing and changing things a little bit at a time, bringing more and more people in so there is no, quote, fear of theater, or, quote, fear of being singled out as an audience member by a play that, uh, will, will, you know, will, will make you feel like you're being attacked. And, and yet finding ways to get, you know, the person in thir seat 32B to talk to the person, you know, in seat 31A in a way that is constructive and enlightening because a lot of the plays that are coming out now are raising, well, they have been forever, are raising questions that need to be discussed. The best plays make you think long after the play is over. You raise also raise and I questions. Will say, well, one last thing, you know, yeah. obviously I wrote this before Trump was elected. And as I said at the start of that article, I wrote it believing that he would ultimately be defeated at the ballot right. box yeah. in uh, November 2016. I was wrong um and i think uh i think his electoral victory has made this even more difficult because you know he's he's a narcissist so all conversations come back to him yeah. it's very difficult to have any sort of political or social conversation that doesn't circle around his orbit. And I do think once he is out of office, it will be easier again to start to create those spaces because we can start to think in terms of our social fabric as opposed to uh, tribes uh, in relationship to this particular individual, yeah. uh, which draws really, really rigid fault lines and doesn't create much of a Venn diagram for for overlap. No, it doesn't. 
Not a whole lot. Yeah, no, it's it's not going to be an easy project. And we have to realize that it's going to take time, but we have to do it anyway, I believe. So, okay, let's move to something not quite as contentious. Uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, MFAs. I have one. You have one. Uh, on the one hand, my MFA... Is it's nice to have letters uh, after my name, and I feel like I've absolutely accomplished something, and I have gotten some decent, very decent training uh, in theater, in playwriting. It has helped me grow. Uh, is it any more useful than that? I mean, for me, obviously, it was incredibly useful, but... That was in large part because I felt like I wanted to go into higher education, uh, and the MFA was a foot in the door when yeah, it comes yeah. to to teaching. Uh, but I do think more broadly that yes, uh, it at least when it comes to to playwriting, again, I don't have data on terms of an MFA in acting, um, but at least to me, when it comes to playwriting, it does seem like the MFA is very very important for getting work uh, so to, to go back to to go back to the previous article um, you know 54.4 percent of these writers have an MFA um, which at first glance you think, oh, that's you know it's about half and half that's not a huge piece of the pie but you think about how many people are actually writing plays right, versus right. how many people are writing plays who have an MFA. Uh, people who are writing plays who have an MFA are a much, much smaller portion of the pie than 54.4%. There are so many people out there writing plays. Um, and so at least when it comes to the new play production landscape, I mean, we very much have a pipeline of your MFA gets you a literary agent. Your literary agent gets your script on a literary manager's desk with uh, a company that does not accept unsolicited scripts or scripts by anyone other than represented writers. Right. So um, uh, in the from that standpoint, um, uh, to me, the data is pretty clear that the MFA does a lot uh, for aspiring writers. Um, I, you know, I, I don't have data on opportunities for directors or actors or designers. Uh, so I, I can't really speak to that. Sure, My MFA sure. is in dramaturgy, you know, anecdotally, uh, I can, uh, I can speak to that. It seems like it certainly does open some doors, but, um, isn't necessarily the deciding factor, uh, in terms of, who gets hired uh, as uh, a dramaturg or a literary manager at companies. Uh, I think most companies have dramaturgs and literary managers who don't have MFAs. Right. Uh, and some of that's also just because you only have, I think, four, maybe five universities in the U.S. right now that are granting MFAs in dramaturgy. So it's a pretty small pool. Oh, yeah, it's a very small pool. I mean, finding but, a theater program in dramaturgy is, is a search in itself. Yes, it is. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about your real work, on the ground, boots on the ground kind of thing. You're in um, oh, Winston-Salem, but you um, – is that correct, Winston-Salem? Uh, I live in the Raleigh-Durham area. Okay, good enough. Yeah. Um, 
you've actually in, uh, worked on getting a $1.2 million grant program uh, for artists in the area. And that's a that takes an awful lot of work, going to meetings, going to city councils, putting together paperwork, drawing up budgets. Um, you're obviously not a very lazy person. So let's talk about that project and what came of it. And the, the, the only thing I'm going to say right now is that you asked for $1.2 million, uh, which is not a whole lot of money. It sounds like a whole lot of money when you first talk about it, but when you consider how much support they give to other things like, you know, sports and, and such like that, it's really a drop in the bucket. What was that journey like for you? Sure. So this started um, as a form of political and social activism back in August of 2019. A friend of mine who's a playwright and a novelist began organizing a speakers series. So twice a month, our city council has public work sessions uh, on Thursday afternoons. Uh, and three artists from the community would speak uh, at each of those sessions urging uh, our council to put public dollars behind the arts. Uh, we didn't really, when we started out, uh, we didn't really know exactly where we were headed. Uh, after about two months of speaker series, and I was, uh, I spoke at the, the first session, um, and they'd heard from you know, 12 or 15 artists at that point, uh, a member of council uh, said to my friend, look, put something together, give us something to look at. Um, so she and I, uh, and another friend of mine, um, who's a co-founder of, uh, Bulldog Ensemble Theater, which is the theater company that I'm a member of, uh, we started writing a draft of a proposal of what, uh, what we wanted, uh, our city's investment in the arts to look like. Uh, we scoured a lot of municipal grant programs all across the country um, and pulled from various models. Um, we looked pretty closely at Raleigh's model. Um, since we live in Durham, it was the city next door. Um, and Raleigh invests $5 per capita and doles out about $1.8 million annually um, to uh, in arts grants. Uh, so we tried to put something together of comparable scale based on uh, the population in Durham. Sure. And so we began work on that proposal. Um, the city has um, a cultural advisory board, uh, and so the mayor referred the proposal to the advisory board. Um, we then worked with the advisory board throughout November, December, uh, and January um, doing some revisions. Uh, those revisions ultimately led to um, a unanimous endorsement by the advisory board. Uh, and then our city government really starts uh, its budget process in February and March and, and wraps it up in April. Uh, it felt like we were going into that with um, a fair amount of momentum. I think we were all kind of assuming that we would get something, although we didn't think we would get the full ask of $1.2 million. Um, and a couple of things kind of started to create bumps in the road. There was a major... Uh, a major public housing issue in our city in in January, um, where our city's uh, our city's largest um, public housing complex uh, became riddled with carbon monoxide, and that 
those repairs became a, a giant new and unexpected expenditure in our city's budget. Uh, so that that kind of started to to change the landscape for us. Um, we the city had a vote. Um, I want to say March sixth. About whether or not to advance the proposal for further consideration. Uh, it was voted for advancement, but at a reduced amount. Um, so we've put in uh, a revised proposal um, where we've asked for $400,000 um, and we've listed our top three priorities. Uh, I had felt pretty good that we would at least get something uh, from that. Uh, in the post-COVID-19 landscape, uh, sure. I'm skeptical that anything will, uh, any new funding will get approved this year. I think, you know, small businesses are getting absolutely hammered. Um, oh, everybody's closing. Yeah. You know, our city's revenue is going to take a huge hit. It collects so much money in hospitality tax. Um, our big performing arts center, our hotels, you know, right. those. Those are closed. I mean, they're not they're not generating any revenue. Um, so it's a bit strange to have have done all of this work, um, to have taken individual meetings with every you know members of council, spoken um, over and over again, um, to work with the city's advisory board, to work with the mayor, um, and then obviously circumstances that are so much bigger than you know our little uh, our little push for funding the arts in our small corner of the world um have come together that uh, i think something will happen eventually there's there's definitely been a great deal of of movement uh in terms of how the city thinks about the arts um and for anyone who's listening i really would encourage you uh to reach out to your uh, reach out to your city council members, reach out to your mayor, reach out to your county commissioners, if it's your county that's invested in the arts, um, because activism around this issue can really start to change people's thinking. It was, you know, it was very clear. We, we have a very progressive council, but it just kind of wasn't on their radar um, until uh, a bunch of people organized to put it on their radar. Yeah. Uh, and so even if nothing happens this year, um, I'm confident that there will be um, some degree of change that that comes to uh, to the arts uh, in my city uh, within the next two or three years at the latest, um, because we the ball really moved forward quite a lot. Yeah, and this whole coronavirus thing has changed everything. Everything in, in um, our society, we are now all quarantined, and. It's hard to do any kind of entertainment thing, um, any kind of project anymore, because nobody's getting together and nobody's getting together in groups. But I'm not sure that means the end of arts projects. I, you're a member of the Bulldog Durham Ensemble. I am. Are, are you guys talking about how to circumvent the coronavirus, how to stay together, how to keep projects moving. I mean, we've got a whole cyber world to explore. And in that, it's still a relatively safe way to communicate to others. Has there been talk of that? Honestly, I think all of us are so concerned with handling the chaos of our familial lives and handling the chaos in our full-time jobs that pay our salaries, that we haven't really had the time and energy to look 
intensely at what we want our company to to be like uh, in this moment. You know, our next show isn't scheduled until the latter part of May. Uh, we have not officially canceled that. Um, obviously, we have to make a decision soon because that show will probably need to go into rehearsal and that show will probably go into rehearsal in about a month. Um, I would be very, very surprised if that show gets off the ground. Um, and then we'll just have to decide, um, how we're going to go from there. Um, but it, at least from my perspective, there are so many unknowns in terms of the, duration of this, that long-term strategic planning um, for us as a, I don't want to call us a volunteer arts organization because we do compensate all of our artists um, to the best that we can. Um, Everyone is paid for their work, um, but it's not anybody's primary source of income. Um, And so, you know, I think we're all just kind of trying to figure out how to keep so many of the areas in our lives from capsizing under this weight. Um, and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll see where we are in the summer and assess from there what, uh, what our company looks like in 2020, 2021, um, what that season looks like, Uh, you know, as a company, we've always done our season planning quite late. Um, we typically do our season planning during the summer. Um, so, uh, in some ways, um, it's not that different than how we normally operate, um, since we tend to do the work on the late side. Yeah. It's a journey that all of us are, excuse me, a journey that all of us are learning to navigate as we go, because there is no playbook for this. And as you say, family, life, work, uh, and theater comes a little bit further down the road, but I will say that it is still an important part of our lives, an important part of keeping in touch and keeping together with our fellows because ensemble projects, you know, if we start to lose touch with each other and we start, we stop being creative, then I think that's going to be the worst tragedy of all. I am so glad you came by to talk with us today. It's been a really, really good conversation. And uh, it's been interesting. Lots of stuff to, to, to think about between the statistics and the propositions and suppositions about the way theater is and will evolve, especially in this time of plague. Um, it's going to be a couple of interesting years to see which way our profession goes. But thank you so much for coming by to talk about it. My pleasure, George. I really appreciate it. Hey, kids. Thanks for listening to On Stage, Off Stage. On Stage, Off Stage is produced monthly and can be heard on WRFI Ithaca Community Radio 88.1 and 91.9 Watkins Glen. All of our shows are archived and can be found at onstageoffstage.org and also on iTunes. If you enjoy what we do, please recommend us to your friends. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at OnOffStage. OnStage Offstage believes in and advocates for a world where all people are free to live their lives as they wish, in peace and without fear. We believe in universal respect, diversity, and equality in all areas of life for all people, no matter their nationality, race, 
religion, age, sexual orientation, or gender. I'm George Sapio. Thanks once again for listening.